Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for this day, for this time, this opportunity to gather as a community, as friends, parishioners, people who've been here before, and people who are new for the first time. We just pray, Lord, whatever we are bringing, whatever baggage from our day, whatever questions, concerns, doubts, worries we may have, questions, whatever curiosity and openness that we have for for you and your workings in our life, Lord. We just bring all of those before you this evening, and we pray, Lord, as we dive into the word, that we would hear your voice, that we would experience your comfort, your guidance, answers to our questions, experience some small glimmer of the satisfaction and fulfillment that only you can offer. And so awaken our minds and hearts and our ears to listen, open, be open, and receive whatever you have in store for each one of us, and guide this time. We lay it at your feet. We ask, Lord, that you remove any worries or distractions from us as we enter into this time, and we pray, Lord, that this would be fruitful and that you would bless each one of us gathered here in the ways that we most need it. We ask all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Welcome. We are, again, we are in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and it is the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, the 30th Sunday in Ordinary Time. And so, uh, this is happening exactly after the uh, gospel we read last week, which was the parable of the persistent widow um, bugging the judge Uh, reminding us to be persistent in prayer. And so this is a continuation of that same moment of teaching where Jesus is teaching, uh, speaking to his disciples in the presence of some Pharisees. And he offers, now that you are know to be persistent in prayer, also keep this in mind. Okay, so these two are meant to be understood together. Okay, so we're going to do what we always do. We're going to read this reading twice through. The first time through, I invite you to paint this picture in your mind, okay? Act as if this scene is playing out before you. Either you're hearing Jesus proclaim this, seeing how it's being received, or you can see yourselves in the actual parable, in the temple area, seeing the story unfold, whatever works for you. But let's uh, listen this first time through, Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Jesus then addressed this parable to those who were convinced of their own righteousness and despised everyone else. Two people went up to the temple area to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee took up his position and spoke this prayer to himself. Oh God, I thank you that I am not like the rest of humanity, greedy, dishonest, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I pay tithes on my whole income. But the tax collector stood off at a distance and would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and prayed, O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, the latter went home justified, not the former. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now that we have a picture, a sense of this passage and what's happening here, maybe you have an image of this in your mind. We're going to read this a second time. And this time, try and focus just on the words as you hear them or see them being read. Um, See if there's a particular word or phrase that stands out to you resonates with you, sparks an idea, a question, uh, and treat that as the Lord speaking directly to you through that particular word, phrase, or detail. Begin to ask, why is this standing out? What's curious about this? Why am I noticing this? What might the Lord be saying to me through this passage? So second time through, let's listen more deeply. 
Jesus then addressed this parable to those who were convinced of their own righteousness and despised everyone else. Two people went up to the temple area to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee took up his position and spoke this prayer to himself. O God, I thank you that I am not like the rest of humanity, greedy, dishonest, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I pay tithes on my whole income. But the tax collector stood off at a distance and would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and prayed, O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, the latter went home justified, not the former. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments, look back over that passage, and specifically the things that stood out to you. Uh, begin to ask why, and then at your tables, and if you're not at a table or you want to combine, feel free to do so, discuss uh, just what are those things that stood out to you, or what questions do you have about this reading, and why. We'll spend about five or ten minutes doing that at our tables, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group for discussion. So take a few moments to do that. But I would love to hear what you were talking about. What are some reflections that you've had? What are things that stood out to you, and why you think they did? They can be insignificant, not really, you don't really know why, it's just, or have nothing to do with the reading, or they can have everything to do with the reading, or just questions that you have. So, love to hear. Yeah. This was a really lively discussion today. Oh, great. It really was. Um, this, this touched a lot of people personally. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, the big line is, the Pharisee took up his position and spoke this prayer to himself. To himself, yeah. He wasn't talking to God. Mm -hmm. He was bragging. Yeah, exactly. And this is, and, and Mr. Kinsey, uh, okay. he, uh, he told me, he told me that self-righteousness is a sin. I didn't know it was. Mm -hmm. But I think self-righteousness is a virus that affects everybody. We mm -hmm. all stumble over it. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it, it could be a virus, a disease for an individual. It could be a disease for a pastor. Mm -hmm. It could be a disease for our church. Yeah. Because... And it could be a stumbling block to evangelization. Mm -hmm. Because if we approach another person to tell them the truth as if we're the superior person, and we got it, and you don't, and you better listen or else, yeah. it ain't going to happen. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that word righteousness, it appears a lot in the Bible. And it, what it really literally means is like to be righteous means to have the quality of rightness, meaning like the morally right or good. And to be self-righteous means that, like, I contain within myself the ability to be right and good without any need of anyone else. And that is completely antithetical to Christianity because we all know that we have no capability of doing that whatsoever without God. And so you're exactly right. Like, the quality of being self-righteous is, it can be very sinful. It can be, I mean, it can be out of ignorance. So that's less, you're less culpable for that. But it's not the disposition we're meant to have. In our relationship with God. See, when you, I, I listened to your video this week. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks for doing that. You're welcome. Yeah. But what was clear in your video this week is prayer is us presenting ourselves to God totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, that's what the tax collectors do. Yeah. That's not what the Pharisees do. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you. Michael. Now, just to say, reading the first time through, it's kind of funny when he was saying that. He's not like the rest of humanity. Mm -hmm. We've heard about what the Pharisees have done yeah. all through Scripture. Um, but also, too, um, yeah, it seems like there's a lack of faith. Uh, the, and he's just talking about the works that he's done. Yeah. Which, you know, like, oh, I go to church every Sunday. Like, I'm good to go. Like, I'm mm -hmm. a great Catholic. Um, it's just kind of funny about how, and, and like you said as well, about how he was saying it to himself. He, he, like, there is a lack of relationship connection. Yeah. Faith with God. So. Yeah, it's more of like a dear diary. Look how great I am. Look, look at all I did today, you know. But this is, this is a common criticism of the Catholic doctrine of faith and works. Because what Protestant and evangelical Christians are, are trained to spot is this type of thing. 
this kind of works-based righteousness. And that is something that we need to pinpoint and say, that's not right. Like we don't earn our salvation. We don't earn our righteousness. That only comes from God and the grace that he gave, that Jesus won for us on the cross. What we believe is that we will be saved only by faith, but we are justified, found justified by that, and will be judged according to our works. So just as I said a few weeks ago, like, I, I can't force my wife to love me when I enter into a relationship with her. That's a free gift she offers me. But throughout the course of our marriage, I'm judged according to whether or not I'm living up to that commitment. And if I don't, there are consequences, right? And if I do, it doesn't mean like I get like extra brownie points, like congratulations, you're gold star married. Like I don't get extra anything. I'm not earning my, in the same way with Christianity, I'm not earning my salvation. But I am paying attention to the fact that based on that commitment to saying I'm responding to this gift that Jesus won for me, that requires certain works. It requires an effort in that relationship. And if I don't make that effort, I'll be judged. And so we should be critical, like our Protestant brothers and sisters are, of works-based righteousness. This idea that if I do the right things and I check the right boxes, then I will get to heaven and be saved. That's not, it's a misunderstanding of the theological teaching and position of the Catholic Church that we can accidentally fall into. And this was something that the Pharisees did all the time. In fact, a lot of Jewish people, it just based on the law and how it was presented, believe that adherence to the law and simply by the fact that you were Jewish, part of the chosen people of God, you were kind of guaranteed salvation. That's why the Pharisees fell into this position where it's like, okay, well, it doesn't really matter if we have this kind of hypocritical lifestyle. We're part of the chosen people, and we, we know the law, and we're teaching other people the law. That was what they thought was required. That's why what Jesus came to preach was so upside down and so refreshing for some and difficult for others. Other questions, thoughts? Yeah, Vicki. Um, the went home justified. Mm -hmm. Justified or justification, that's a big word in salvation theology. It's called soteriology. So going back to what I was just talking about, like faith versus faith and works. Um, for, for Protestants, they believe that, just for most Protestants, non-Catholic Christians believe that if you simply have a moment where you express faith in Jesus, and um, that's all you need, you are justified by faith alone. And that moment of justification is just a moment, okay? So you're claiming what Jesus did for you on the cross for yourself by no means or effort of your own, and in that moment, you are saved. For the Catholic, we would say that initially, we are justified in the same way, but justification is a process by which we need to act in certain ways, have certain works to live up to it. So that's the small difference, uh, and that's why when you look at areas of the Bible where it says like you are only saved by grace in Ephesians chapter 2, but then you also see in James chapter 2 where it says faith without works is dead, both of those things seem contradictory, but in the Catholic view, they actually align very well. Whereas in other um, denominations, it's very hard to justify both of those. They seem contradictory, if that makes sense. So anytime you see the word justified, righteousness, saved, all those things have to do with salvation theology. And it's very, very nuanced in the way that different denominations and also throughout history, like going back to Martin Luther, how they nuanced that. But that's generally what it is. Yeah, Tim. I know the word justified is used in the passage you read. Yes. And that troubled me a little bit too for the same reason. Mm -hmm. We attach some pretty profound meanings to being justified. Oh, yeah. I would have understood it more in terms of that one went away forgiven and the other one. Sure. Yeah. Well, salvation has everything to do with forgiveness. So you'd be right in that in that sense too. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. I feel like it could even be even deeper where it's like the Pharisee, how is his relationship? Mm -hmm. Not it's barely there. It's not really a relationship. Yeah. So in that sense it's like he goes home kind of like without the comfort of God, yeah. you know, in a way, because he kind of put himself in this and doesn't want to see it any other way, clearly, by yeah. calling out the tax collector and other people, you know, so it's like he kind of puts himself in this little box, you know, which, of course, like, with the way things were back then, you know, it's difficult to break out of that because it was so brought down by tradition, tradition, mm -hmm. tradition, and, you know, they truly did think that that was the right thing, but, you know, at the end of the day, they will realize at some point when they're struggling with things that they don't have, like, that real relationship, 
Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that's what it can also mean when it says he's the former. Yeah. Be, you know. Yeah. Or put all of his hope and all of his eggs in the wrong basket. You know, in the works of the law. You know, um, you know, we haven't talked about this in a while, but you know, the Pharisees. Who are they? They're this group. Uh, the word Pharisee in Greek, Pharisaeus, means separated ones. So it means that they saw themselves as living separate from everyone else, meaning that they understood the law better than anyone else. And they were a group, a division of Judaism that believed that uh, adherence to the law is what led to salvation. Adherence to the law was necessary. When you don't obey the law, destructive things happen. Not because God is oppressive, but because God gave us these rules to teach us how to live an abundant life. So you read anywhere in the Old Testament, you'll see this theme come up over and over again, that obedience leads to abundance, disobedience leads to destruction when it comes to the law. Obedience leads to abundance, disobedience leads to destruction. So the Pharisees knew that, they embodied that, they had memorized and would enforce all 613 laws of the Jewish legal system and religious system. There was a group of 70 of them, uh, Pharisees and scribes, that made up the Sanhedrin, the kind of supreme court of Judaism. So they were, again, legalism was there. And they were in charge of kind of developing these different schools of teaching and thought. They were in charge of the synagogue schools, the rabbinical system, like making sure everyone was doing what they were supposed to be doing, teaching in a valid way. And if any new kind of teaching came along, they would come and question, where did you get this? From what authority? You know, where in the law or what rabbi do you connect this line of teaching to? Okay, so they were these kind of, um, I guess you could say, uh, Jewish law watchdogs. Okay, that's who the Pharisees were. And tax collectors, on the other hand, they were Jewish people who had kind of sold um, their or sold out to the Roman oppressive government. Okay, they were tasked with the ability to levy Roman tax on their Jewish brothers and sisters. And they were allowed to increase the tax as much as they wanted beyond what was asked and pocket the rest. They were allowed to do that. Okay? Oftentimes, tax collectors had to bid for a different area, meaning they were already pretty wealthy and well-off in order to kind of bid for that. And in order to make back their money on bidding for that area, if they won the bid, they had to raise taxes so they could pocket it. And so they were charging three, four times what the Roman tax was so they could get that back or for their own selfish gain. So they were... You know, Romans didn't like them because they were Jewish. Jews didn't like them because they sold out their Jewish brothers and sisters for Rome, which was seen as like one of the most heretical, awful things that you could do based on all the previous stories that we have that are similar in the Old Testament. So that's how separate these two people were from each other. And now the audience here is disciples of Jesus and Pharisees. And so when the Pharisees are listening to this Pharisee listing off these things, the Pharisees are probably like, yeah, that's good stuff. He is separated. Like, that's what our name means. We are the separated ones. So we're not like the rest of humanity. Look at all of the good that he's doing. We're doing that stuff too. And then when it gets to the line where it says, um, I tell you, the latter went home justified, not the former, specifically pointing out that the former one did not. That would have been the shocking moment for everyone listening, the Pharisees in particular. That would have been a hard pill to swallow. And if you want to know what Jesus thinks of the Pharisees, you can read one of my favorite chapters of the Gospels, which is all of Matthew 23, um, which has a series of the phrase, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. I'll read to you a short section um, of this very chipper chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You pay tithes of of mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier things of the law, judgment and mercy and fidelity. But these you should have done without neglecting the others. Blind guides who strain out the gnat and swallow the camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You cleanse the outside of cup and dish, but inside they are full of plunder and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, cleanse first the inside of the cup so that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones and every kind of filth. Even so on the outside, you appear righteous, but inside you are filled with hypocrisy and evil doing. Jesus loves everyone, right? You know? Yeah. Jesus brought down the fire with the Pharisees. That's the entire 23rd chapter of Matthew is all like that. Um, and that's just the beginning. I think he goes on in chapters 24 and 25, but he gets into parables and stuff. But that's what 
Jesus thought of this mentality. And that's what really the whole Jewish world, the other people who were non-Pharisees, were probably thinking. Because they saw this legalism, they saw this being enforced on them, um, oppressed on them, all of these different laws and other laws that the Pharisees just made up, called the traditions of the elders, that they imposed on people. And they were fed up with it too. And they saw that they weren't, you know, abiding by all these laws, but what could they do? This, these were the powers that be. And so that's who these two different people are. And that's why it would have been so shocking for Jesus to praise the tax collector who was seen as a betrayer and scathe or uh, scorn the, uh, the Pharisee who was seen as this, you know, legalistic hero by many, especially by themselves. Yeah. Different take on this. We all are just, you know, you say Pharisee, we're going to go like this. Mm -hmm. And I kind of try to say, okay, there are people too. Okay, sure. what is it that they're doing that's good that maybe they, they grew up with and mm -hmm. they think is the right thing? Is it is it not right to be, you know, is it not right to not be humble? No. Yeah. Is, it, uh, is it not right to be, you know, judging other people? No. But I, I just try to kind of look at it from a different perspective that, you know, that they're not all bad. If sure. They're, if they're, they're taking their gifts or their knowledge and they're not appreciating God for it, they're mm -hmm. not, you know, I mean, there's things that they're doing wrong, but nobody ever gives them any credit for anything, and I think there's got to be something there. Yeah. And uh, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, right? John chapter 3, he comes to Jesus in the, in the quiet of night because he wants to question him. He, he has a desire to know who Jesus is, and he's not angry. He's not accusatory. He wants, he comes to him as a disciple. Yes, in secret, because of the, pub, the publicity of his position. But notice how Jesus addresses this parable. He addressed this parable to those who were convinced of their own righteousness and despised everyone else. He doesn't say to the disciples or to the Pharisees because that can exist in either category. Those who think they are self-righteous, they can be disciples. Remember elsewhere in the gospels where James and John come and ask Jesus, Lord, let us sit at your right and your left. You know, or Lord, should we call down fire and brimstone on those people preaching in your name or whatever, you know, the passage is, you know, so there can be that same temptation to self-righteousness among the disciples. And it's not addressed solely to the Pharisees because not all the Pharisees are bad. You know, Nicodemus, I think there's evidence that Joseph of Arimathea may have been a Pharisee uh, and he helps bury Jesus's body and deal with the burial rites and things like that. So uh, yeah, absolutely. That's a really great point. Timmy had your hand up. Well, I was just going to mention that we learn in the book of Acts that a large number of Pharisees become Messianic. Yes, yeah. And are actually in the church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they were believing in secret. Yeah, Deba. Um, you were asked about like, that they despised. Um, that, that word got me thinking of how many times I despise people who do not live a right life. Mm -hmm. And ignoring the fact that inside of them how much they're yeah I mean nothing is more relatable to that than us being in the midst of election season right you know and thinking of you know whoever is voting the opposite that you're planning to vote you know how could they what is wrong with them how evil are they you know I mean, I think anytime I get those mailers in the mail, I wish I kept a list better. But my, I want my policy to be that if you waste paper and send me a mailer, I'm not going to vote for you. I don't care who you are. Like, I don't care what your party is. Because I've gotten, like, literally a 1,000 of them. Like, it's in, in, insane. Um, but I don't have the patience to keep track of them all. I just throw them away. So, um, but, like, that, this is a time where we're reminded of the way that we can so easily be divi uh, divided, so easily look at the other person whoever they are, whatever group that we think is antithetical to our way of life or thinking, and demonize them very easily, you know, or look at others who do, you know, fall into this accidental or sometimes on purpose self-righteousness in our faith. You know, like, well, I'm glad I'm not living like that, you know. But we all sin. And someone, I can't remember who it was, but I think some saint said that all sin is but a drop of water in the ocean of God's mercy. So we may see like, oh, this severe mortal sin and this tiny little venial sin that I'm struggling with. And to God, it's, it's just sin. And he doesn't want any of it for us. But he's not saying, oh, you're so terrible to the one that did the bad thing. And you're like, oh, you're a little bit better. Like it's like, no, he just, he loves us all, sees us all through the lens of love, but also sees all sin 
through the lens of wanting to redeem us and wanting us to be rid of it. It's that simple. We get into the kind of comparison because we live in a very compar comparison and uh, achievement-oriented world, you know, that's very hierarchical and very competitive, and it's easy for us to categorize people. And so we have to be very conscious of that, be very conscious of that, which is why this comes after this being persistent in prayer, making sure that you're coming to God consistently in prayer. By the way, when you do that, don't think that makes you better than anybody else. You're coming to God consistently in prayer. Why? Because you need it. Yeah, because you need it. Yeah. No, I, I was going to talk about exactly what you brought up. Yeah. Says, um, sometimes I think, what is something I can exploit in, of God? Sure. That I can just get in better, better up in my faith. Mm -hmm. And it's that it's that mercy towards sinners. Um, I've been trying to pray in quiet lately. I, I haven't been doing that for a long time. I'm mm -hmm. trying to get back into it. And what's been going on is like my past will be brought up in my mind or people that are in my life. And I pray for them and I pray for myself and for, for mercy and, and all that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's plenty to, uh, you know, you, I like that you use the word exploit because it sounds negative. But, you know, there's plenty to exploit in God. Like his mercy is endless. His love is abounding. Like his abundance is always pouring out. You know, but when we allow an obstacle to get in the way of that, like, oh, this sin I can't overcome or this way that others view me, or this thing that I want to achieve for myself, and then I'll be good enough. You know, these things that we get wrapped up in or that we think will fulfill us or satisfy us that are outside of God, that's when we can, we can be the ones that, that stop that flowing of grace. We can be the ones that put the obstacle there. So, yeah, I love that word, exploiting, because there is so much to exploit in such a good way that the Lord wants to, to give us. Yes? Where, where does it talk in Scripture about stuff like, sacrificing and praying for the salvation of souls. Like like Our Lady Fatima says, pray the rosary because people go to hell because there's nobody praying and sacrificing for them. Um, so like making atonement for the dead and things like that, like evidence for purgatory? Living, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, First Maccabees, I can't remember the chapter, is one of the best places for that. Um, but all throughout the letters as well, the First Corinthians chapter 3, being purified through fire and through prayer. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Others, I'm not sure off the top of my head, but yeah, it's there. Yeah. <laughs> Google it. Google knows. Right. Yeah. You know, between the single comparisons mm -hmm. and Jesus either chastising them in person or through a parable, mm -hmm. but every once in a while, I just wish that someone would just stick it to one of the Pharisees. <laughs> Like, how I would like this to have ended is that <clears throat> as the Pharisee and the tax collector both left the temple at the same time, mm. the, Pharisee the Pharisee accidentally tripped on the robe of the tax collector <laughs> and face-planted in the middle of the temple sure. in front of the whole congregation while the tax collector walked off outside unaware. Yeah. Just, so just stick it to him once. That's all. Oh, we, that's our desire for justice, right? We want to see justice served, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're free. It, the scripture doesn't say exactly, you know, you're free to, you know, make an adaptation, you know? You can see Greg in his free time, like claymation, like making his own animated short about this parable. I mean, I'd watch it a thousand times. But don't you wish for that? Jesus, I don't know. You shouldn't do that. And here's the parable here. Then while they're running around, you know, like, you know, the guys give to the world. Like, you yeah. Know, well, I think, I think all the times that maybe I'm tempted to desire things like that, wanting to see justice in those areas, the Holy Spirit inspires me to remember all the ways that I'm deserving of that from my own past as well. And grateful that God didn't create a situation where I fell flat on my face. I mean, sometimes I did, you know, and rightly so. But grateful for the times that I didn't, and then recognizing, like, oof, you know, if his, if I needed his mercy then, this prob this person probably needs it now, you know. So, True. yeah. At, at the final judgment, by the way, if you don't know this, I like reminding people of this. At the final judgment, because when you when you die, you'll go before Jesus. That's called your particular judgment, and you and Jesus will have whatever uh, conversation about the course of your life and salvation and whatnot. But in the end, when all of time, you know, ends and Jesus returns, there'll be the final judgment. And at the final judgment, everyone 
in all of existence in the entire world that are alive, all of our sins will be made known to everyone else. And we'll see the effect not only of all of our sins to everyone, but also of all of our good works. And we'll see how that affected everyone. It will all be revealed to us. That can't be possible. Oh, it's true. It's true, baby. It's in the Bible. It's true. So, if you're really waiting for that moment of justice, it will come. But be aware, it will come for you, too. So... <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have come tonight. It's still going to happen. At least now you know. Now you're aware. <laughs> Anywho, nothing like a good talk on the final judgment to get the blood flowing, right? Other things uh, stand out? Other questions about this passage? Ellie? Um, yeah, so the last part where it says, because everyone that insults himself shall be humbled, and he that insults himself shall be exalted. Exactly, like beating himself because, like earlier, he says those same exact words. Yeah. Um, when you know about like the whole like wedding, um, people want to get someone gets invited. Yes. Yeah. Um, sitting at the lowest place, so then that you know the host can actually bring you up higher mm -hmm. versus like oh now I'm gonna take a seat here and then you actually are brought down. So mm -hmm. this, you know ongoing theme of just like humility and here again is like a comparison of like um, the Pharisee and like the tax Absolutely. Yeah, it's repeated in Luke 14 and Matthew 23. It's, you know, several times. But the fact that it's twice in the same gospel is very interesting. That doesn't really happen. You know, so twice in the same gospel, it's the same exact phrase. And Luke, remember, his audience is a Gentile audience. You know, he's a, he's a Gentile who converted, and he's writing to an audience of Gentiles, meaning a people who is constantly being forcibly humbled by the not only, you know, oppressive Roman forces around them, but then also the Jewish, you know, community around them who isolated them and saw them as outcasts. And now they're being invited into this new covenant, this uh, kind of redemption through Judaism into this new way of life, the way which became, you know, Catholicism, Christianity. And it, they need to be reminded of that message. And so I think that's why it's particularly repeated in, in Luke's gospel twice, which is, you know, very unusual that a phrase like that would happen be repeated that many times, you know, in separate stories um, where it doesn't happen elsewhere. So, yeah, thank you for pointing that out. I've also yeah. heard that sometimes people confuse relationship with God with religion. Mm -hmm. so, uh, after all, what God wants of us is, is our hearts. Mm -hmm. So if, if uh, we may be doing all the right things, but if our heart is not in them, it's not the right way to do things. Yeah. You say the same thing for a marriage. Like people get married just to have a really good looking marriage. You know, like, okay, we're going to do all of the experiences that I can post on my Instagram so that people will see and we'll have this very, you know, polished looking relationship. But then when we're not posting, we're not talking, we're not really spending quality time together. You know, we're only being romantic or, you know, going on dates for the sake of the photo or the public appearance or whatever it is. And I think celebrity culture probably is a lot like that, you know? Um, and what Ellie, what you reminded me of is that like, you know, the temple area and the scene, this is social media 2000 years ago, right? You know, you're looking around and comparing yourself to everyone else. This is my gripe with social media is that, I mean, I have many, but, um, first of all, a really great story about social media because she's not here to be embarrassed. My wife. Um, so you all know what Instagram is. Yes. I assume you, you know, you share pictures on this. My wife got an Instagram when it started which I don't know who knows that, 2008 maybe-ish, you know, long time ago. My wife got an Instagram, and all she posted on there were pictures of her cat. She found out, like, two years later that you can be friends with other people on this app. That's the whole point of it. And she had no idea. She treated it like a photo album for her cat. 
which was so beautiful to be there while she was so embarrassed that like I was there. Her cousin was like, oh, you should friend me on Instagram. She's like, you can do that? And she was like, yeah. And then, and then my wife realized that the world was going to see all of her weird pictures of her with her cat. And she didn't think that was possible. It was just a beautiful thing to witness. Anyway, so, but the thing about social media is that you post a picture and it's not just there. It has these commands or options to like, to comment, to share. And so our whole life and lifestyle becomes something that's brought into the public discourse to be commented upon or approved or shared as a kind of model for other people to follow. And yes, it has some, you know, it's adapted into some, you know, funnier things or things that might be for our betterment and learning and connecting with people. But fundamentally, it kind of has this fatal flaw that every time we go on there, we're tempted to compare. Nobody is really honest completely on there, sharing like the highs and the lows equally without filters, you know, we share the highlight reels, we share the trips and the vacations and the great experiences and the graduations and all the achievements and et cetera. And the, the temple area and the scene is no different. You know, people are looking around and they're seeing, at least the Pharisees looking around and seeing like, look how great I am. You know, looking at all his friends and saying, oh, I have the most followers. You know, people are liking my posts more than everybody else because I do all these great things. You know, I just got a brand deal with the temple to sell the greatest grain, you know, or whatever, you know. Um, but that's, that's this, it's the same problems, different package, you know? 2,000 years later, we have the same struggles. Um, and, and to see the humility here of, the, of, of the, the tax collector, to be ashamed to even look around, you know, like it, knowing he has absolutely nothing to offer this crowd, and ashamed to even look at the good that they're doing because he knows he's not doing it. And the really powerful thing about this passage is this is what the tax collector says. He says, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's it. He doesn't say, and now I'm going to go change my life. He doesn't, he doesn't make a promise to do anything different, does he? But he does the fundamental thing that we all need to do in order to have an accurate and rightly ordered relationship with God is to acknowledge that we are sinners. Even if we can't, in that moment, overcome it. Even if we can't in that moment strive to put in an effort or act as though we're going to try and be perfect, even if that moment all we can muster is just saying, like, God, I can't, but you can. That, to me, is the most powerful part of this passage. Because all of us, all of us approach the throne of God with empty hands. All of us. And the fuller you think your hands are when you come to that moment of judgment the more shocking and difficult it is probably going to be. Because we're going to think like, look, God, look at all the stuff that I did, all this stuff I brought before you. And Jesus is going to look at us with love and say, what if that is not something that I gave you? What if that is freely yours, that you created all on your own? It's all from him. He won't look at us with derision or, or judgment necessarily in that sense, but he'll be honest. And recognize that the only thing that we can come before him with, that we can write our name on, is our sin. And so the most honest, most humble prayer that can be prayed is this. And it's become known as the sinner's prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is where it comes from. It has a similar uh, root in uh, the repentant psalm of King David when he's found out that he had uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, verse 3. It begins, Have mercy on me, God, in accordance with your merciful love, and your abundant compassion blot out my transgressions. That's that beautiful Old Testament lineage. But put so simply here. And there have been hundreds of books written about that prayer and how it is, is, can be the most profound. And in fact, some of the most um, mystic oriented uh, saints in the church or theologians in Catholicism have talked about, you know, searching for prayer. I think Thomas Merton wrote about this, or maybe it was Henry Nouwen, um, writing about the search, you know, for, um, for a more contemplative relationship with God. And then, what, is this Thomas Merton? I think this is Thomas Merton. He encountered like someone from an Eastern religion and they were in, and he just had him pray this prayer as he breathed. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, in have mercy on me, a sinner, out. And after he did that for like months, it just became habit. 
Every time he breathed in the back of his mind, he was praying this prayer and it completely transformed him. I'm butchering whatever that story or reference is, but it was something to that effect. Um, but that's the power of this prayer. And it's a really beautiful um, centering prayer. If you're familiar with centering prayer, you really focus and center yourself on your breath and you pick like just a word or a phrase to repeat to kind of anchor your mind and your thought to prayer. A lot of people choose this, this prayer, sinner's prayer. It's a really, really great prayer to commit to memory or to just bring into your everyday life. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or even just Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Beautiful. Doesn't even promise to change. But in simply acknowledging that I come before you, God, with empty hands, he's already more justified than the Pharisee who's coming to God with all this stuff that's not actually his. Other things stand out in this or other questions? Well, then, let me point out a few things that we haven't talked about yet. Tell us some more about Instagram and wife. Instagram, my wife? Yeah, no, I'm good. I've uh, sufficiently, when she finds out, I'll have sufficient looks. So, anyways. Um, yes, yeah, I'm used to that for sure. Um, so I want to talk about the Pharisee and the things that he lists. Okay, so what he lists here, I fast twice a week and I pay tithes on my whole income. Okay? Fasting in the Jewish law was actually only required one day a year, and it was on the Day of Atonement. And that was when the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, he could utter the name of God, and it was this act of sacrificial penance to ask for the forgiveness of the sins of all the people from that entire year. Okay? It was a very, and it's still practiced in, in the Jewish faith. Um, as they obviously don't have a temple to sacrifice in, but there's still, you fast that day, there's a series of prayers, and it's this big day of atonement and repentance. Very, very important holy day. Um, I think Yom Kippur is what it is in, in uh, the Jewish faith. Um, it's the, the name for it. So, um, so fasting twice a week is far above and beyond what was required. Okay, so this Pharisee, back to Margot's point, he, he is doing things that aren't the bare minimum. You know, he's actually trying to do this. It's why he's trying to do it. It's the motivation behind it that is being called into question here. Because there was, in rabbinical literature, there was this practice of Pharisees fasting twice a week and they would do it on Mondays and Thursdays because those were the market days. So all these people would be in town selling things, and they would powder pale their skin, and they would dress themselves in rags, and they would kind of limp through the market to show everyone how miserable they were because they were fasting. Okay, This was a real historical process that happened. That's why Jesus, when he's talking about fasting in Matthew chapter 6, he says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They neglect their appearance, that they may appear to others to be fasting. Amen, I say to you, they have received their reward. They got the attention they wanted. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you may not appear to others to be fasting, except to your Father who is hidden, and your Father who sees what is hidden will repay you. Okay? So that was a common practice at the time. Make yourself look utterly miserable and pathetic every time you're fasting. And they would do this twice a week to get these accolades and, um, you know, oh, good for yous from the people. And then I fast or I tithe on my whole income. This was not required either. You're only uh, meant to tithe. This is in Deuteronomy 14. You're only meant to tithe. Each year you shall tithe all the produce of your seed that grows in the field. So just the first fruits of your harvest, that's what you were meant to tie, the tenth of that. But this is his whole income. So he's going above and beyond. He's doing far more than the average Pharisee or faithful Jew would be doing. And this, brothers and sisters, this is what I'm talking about, the trap that we can fall into. Because even when we feel like we're doing a lot of good, doing more than other people, we really have to be conscious of what is the motivation here. Am I doing this to be seen? Am I serving in ways that are not glamorous or easy? Am I serving in ways that are not glamorous or easy? Oh, it's so easy to serve meal at a soup kitchen during Thanksgiving or holiday season with your family once a year. It's easy to do that. But to do it, you know, every Tuesday night and learn the names of those people and build relationships with it where no one else in your community can even see or know what you're doing and you get no benefit from it or payment or acknowledgement, it doesn't go on a resume, you get no college credit, you know, you're not announcing it or trying to claim volunteer hours for it for anyone. 
that's harder. That's less glamorous. That's less easy. You know, putting money in the collection basket, which we need, it goes and serves people in the community. But we all, most of us, have the ability to go and actually get our hands dirty and do that. You know, go build a house for Habitat for Humanity. Go on a week-long mission trip. Go find the people who are living in the more, you know, slum-like areas, even in Orange County, and meet them and encounter them. I think I said this a few weeks ago, but someone once said that um, the poor need the rich in this life to survive, but the rich need the poor in the next life. They teach us how to be humble. And when we encounter them, that's where that real humility comes in. And we bring that humility to prayer and we recognize we're all poor in spirit before the Lord. That's what really gets us to that place of what Jesus is talking about in prayer. Because back in the Sermon on the Mount, when he criticizes fasting, he also criticizes the way that people pray. This is what he says in Matthew 6. He says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites who love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on street corners so that others may see them. Amen, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go to your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will repay you. In praying, do not babble like the pagans who think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And then he says, this is how you are to pray, and he gives them the Lord's Prayer. Simple prayer to to repeat each day. And so these practices, prayer, fasting, almsgiving, practices we usually just assign to the season of Lent, these make up the Christian life all year round, 24-7, 365. How do they look in our lives? Why do we do them? Do we do them only because we are compelled to do them because of a liturgical season? Do we fast in Lent because we really want to grow closer to the Lord and grow in self-control or because we want to lose weight and we failed at our first New Year's resolution? And this is like a second chance, right? Okay, I've been guilty of that like 10 years in a row in the past, okay? So like, I know. But that's the reality. What's the motivation? Something we always have to be in consideration of. I saw a hand over here. Greg? Well, you mentioned that those examples of the Pharisees, uh, like you said, that he deliberately puts on this act of the way he dresses and everything, mm-hmm. so that people walk into the marketplace so that people can see what he's doing. He's giving an example. Mm-hmm. He stands on the corner to prayer, to say a prayer. He's giving an example. So we hear about their motivation, but just like anything else, they are giving a sign to the other people who are not doing that. Then you wonder, did anybody kind of pick up on what they're doing and actually do it for real? because of what they saw the Pharisees were doing. Mm. Not that the Pharisees wanted and cared, yeah, because they were only out for themselves. You think, you know, you pass someone on a street corner. I mean, I, I remember seeing, you know, uh, driving like on Olympic Boulevard years ago, and I saw a Muslim guy actually roll out his carpet right on the sidewalk on Olympic. Yeah. And he knelt down to pray, yep. you know? And I was struck by that, Yeah, you know, his devotion for that. So, and he didn't care about me, and I used to do his thing. And yeah. of course, his motivation was different mm-hmm. than a Pharisee's, but just that image you give them walking through the marketplace and looking like crap, yeah. you know, and all that. It's like, you know, you wonder were other people affected by that in a positive way? You know, I, possibly, but I would say probably not because the Pharisees weren't obeying all of these other fundamental laws of the Torah. Like I said, the Torah only required that one day of fasting, but it also required that you provide for the widow, for the orphan, you don't oppress people, and they were guilty of doing a lot of those things. You know, Jesus criticizes the scribes and the Pharisees for devouring the homes of widows because of their legalism and their ability to take advantage of them financially. So it was more of the fact that, like, yes, had they been faithful to all of that, and then they were doing some and then some— then you could kind of question the motivation, like, okay, is this for their own self-aggrandizement, or is this because they're actually trying to enforce this on the people? But the problem was they weren't doing what was fundamental. They were only doing these ancillary things for their, their own benefit. That was the issue. Yeah. Yeah. But it could, you know, I always say God can work in a cardboard box. So, like, God could have used that messed up, you know, motivation to inspire people then, and who knows, you know. But, yeah. Yeah. Tim. The behavior that you're describing the Pharisees engaging in, almost a form of spiritual adultery. Oh, yeah. They're, not, they're, they're doing what they should be doing to please God alone. They're doing to please people so people will praise them. Yeah. Or even pleasing themselves, yeah. you know? And you could see, you know, in any marriage relationship, if I'm only concerned with pleasing myself, 
the kind of you know twisted pleasure seeking habits I could get into, or if I'm only seeking the attention of other people, how easy it would be for my eyes to divert away from my relationship to my wife. It's the same thing, you know? So same thing is true with our, our spiritual life. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, one more thing. Um, there's a phrase that's used in here where the tax collector, he, tax collector, he stands off at a distance, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and prayed. Only other time that phrase, beat his breast, is prayed, is in Luke, later in this chapter, 23, verse 48. And that is when Jesus has died on the cross. And it says, The centurion who witnessed what had happened glorified God and said, This man was innocent beyond doubt. When all the people who had gathered for this spectacle saw what had happened, they returned home beating their breasts. It's a sign of complete anguish, this gesture. I mean, we do this at every Mass, right? Through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault, when we pray the Confidior. Recognizing from the very beginning of Mass, when we come to worship, when we're brought before God, to humble ourselves. Remember, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Meaning that you are not the center of attention, that we are all part of this divine story where God is doing something incredible, and we all get to partake of that in some incredible way with our unique gifts, our unique mission and purpose. But it's not that we are the center and key player, the starring role of life. And when we can recognize that, real humility is seeing ourselves as we are and seeing God as he really is and recognizing both of those roles. That's what real humility is. So people who are humble can be very confident because they know who God is, and they know who they are before God and the gifts that they've been given by him and how they can glorify him. But it's when it becomes about me and getting attention for myself and that distracts from God, that is when it becomes uh, self-righteousness. And that is what the Pharisees were being criticized of, wanting people to see them instead of seeing God. And we have to be conscious of that. We have to be conscious of how we pray, how we fast, how we give alms, what our motivation is for those things. But also recognize that no sooner that we look out at other people and start to compare, do we also need to look in the mirror and recognize we all come before God with empty hands. And so how can we recognize each day that anything that we perceive to have is a gift and be grateful for that, but remember that those empty hands are going to be empty in the end. And so how can I recognize each day with gratitude everything that God has done for me and how unworthy of it I am? Not in a self-deprecating way, but in a way where like, wow, I'm that beloved by God. That despite my sin, despite my mistakes, he has mercy each and every day. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this evening, for this community, for this, this word from your sacred scriptures. And we pray, Lord, that these words and reflections would stay with us this week. They would challenge us to act, to reflect and to be humble in our prayer as we continue in our persistence, always asking you um, for what we need, but coming before you as your children, not with any rights or entitlement to anything, but recognizing all you give is gift. And so, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on us, for we are sinners. And yet, despite that sin, you love us and saw us worth dying for. And so we pray, Lord, each and every day we would claim that gift of salvation on the cross and respond to it in good works, not for our own self-aggrandizement, but for your glory. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So